0: You're listening to the Soil Talk podcast presented by Central Valley Ag. This is Keith Byerly, Precision Ag Manager at CVA, and I'm joined by Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead at CVA.
1: so we spent the last three segments talking about nitrogen. We talked about uh, oh the nitrogen cycle, and we talked about making nitrogen recommendations, and we talked about inhibitors and split application. Now we're going to completely switch gears and move to phosphorus, which I, I find a completely different
0: animal. So, Keith, how is phosphorus different than nitrogen? About every way imaginable. I mean, honestly, I mean, from from the way we apply it in the forms that we apply it, the timing, the ability to build our levels and rely on it coming out of the soil to feed a crop, the amount that we uptake during the growing season, the time that it's uptake and during the growing season, it literally is like the moon and sun, they are two totally different characters and have to be treated as such.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I always think of nitrogen as, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. But I think of phosphorus as putting money in the bank and it's a reserve that you can pull from later. You know, if I get a phosphorus recommendation wrong, I, I usually don't worry about it too much. because I'll tell the girl, I said, well, I, I guess you ended up yielding quite a bit more than I shot for. But I doubt I hurt you or it's the other way around. But and if you didn't yield as well as we'd hoped it'll be around for the next crop. Or maybe I apply a little later in the season for something I'm trying to do and I don't feel I got the benefit out of it, but I know it's going to be there later. Whereas nitrogen, if I don't get it this year, you know, maybe I can get a little if I'm corn on corn, but especially if I'm a corn and bean rotation, if I don't get nitrogen right, any extra I apply is just gone. Yes. Yep. So as you think about nitrogen and how you make recommendations for growers, what do you tell me? What's the key piece of information you look at first when you're going to
0: make an or a phosphorus recommendation? So when we talk about phosphorus recommendations for growers, it's the exact opposite of nitrogen, where we talk about nitrogen Looking at the weather, looking at our, our yield production history and all of these different pieces that we talked about, and and almost to the point where the soil test was one of the very last pieces that came into making a nitrogen recommendation. The soil test is the very first place that you start with that phosphorus recommendation. Yes, we can bank it in the soil. Yes, it it, it, it would seemingly take a long time to make any monumental shifts. In a nitrogen rate whether that's driving it higher or driving it from a high rate to a lower those things don't happen over time but it is fluid it does change over time and, and different things like ph and all of those things have importance in the interaction and how we see are available phosphorus. So I think there you almost have to start with the conversation about what test am I looking at when I look at my soil lab report? Is it a Malik? Is it a Bray? What do I have there? Is it an Olson? What do you know? I think most of our growers, when they look at a lab report, they're either gonna see a Bray or a Malik. Yeah, you're right, Keith. So if you're looking at one scale,
1: one laboratory extraction versus another, there's a huge difference in those scales. So I always tell people, I want your phosphorus level to be about 25 part per million, but I'm talking about the P1 Bray extraction. If you're using a malic extraction, I expect that to be a little higher, maybe around 30 If you're using an Olson, which is used a lot in uh, some of the northern areas, the Dakotas, uh, because it works well on high pH soils, that scale's lower and maybe a number closer to 20 part per million is appropriate. So let's just uh, say we're using the P1 Bray scale. I
0: like the number of 25 part per million. What do you like, Keith? So 25 part per million is the number I'm going to go to before I start asking all the other questions. You know, when when we move west of Highway 281 in Nebraska and we get out of the irrigation, 25 part per million is probably more than adequate for what our yield ranges are with the rainfall out there. When we move into areas of South Dakota or Kansas, there's definitely different localized factors that I think can move that value down or maybe even up for those guys that are high intensity managers that are looking at the 300 bushel corn yield goals and doing different things to get to those ranges. So the grower's environment and the grower's particular farming operation is going to start skewing that either plus or minus from that 25 part per million bray, but that's where I'm going to start as well.
1: Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I I like to focus a lot on crop removal as well. When I'm talking to a grower, once I get their yield levels uh, discussed with them, one of the first things I want to move to is, okay, you're you're raising 200 bushel corn. That's somewhere around 75 or 80 pounds of P205. If I can double that number, that's about where you're going to end up with MAP removal. So if I'm taking off 75 pounds of P205, MAP is 52 percent. P205. So I divide that 75 by 0.52. That comes up to a number of about 150 pounds a map. And I like to kind of orient my conversation around that. You know, if you're at that 25 part per million I want you to be at, then we just need to do crop removal. If you're quite a bit above that, maybe you get some manure history or something, we can mine the soil a little bit. I don't necessarily want you to drop to zero, but let's do a percent of crop removal, maybe half, maybe a fourth of crop removal. If you're a lot lower than that 25 part per million, then we need to talk about that full crop removal plus some to build it over time. I don't necessarily need you to build it all the way up to 25 parts per million this year, but over time, you need to be adding phosphorus
0: to that soil beyond what you're taking out with your crop. I think that's really important because as an agronomy service provider, that, that person that you're entrusting to do your soil tests, can justify their own job, uh, justify their existence in, in your variable rate application with your phosphorus rates if they're not looking at some of those factors. You know, for instance, if I don't put anything on when I see a 40 part per million or a 30 part per million this time and I come back and soil test four or five years down the road, and those levels have dropped to 22 or, or 24 or 19 or whatever they do, because we'd like to believe that it's a fairly predictable thing in which it's not. But OK, so now I've got a variable rate apply those acres plus crop removal on those acres that I put nothing on and the lows go high and the highs go low. And we've got this ocean thing going on out here where we're just riding the waves every time we resample and we have to stick with that pattern and we never... Build stability. So, when you have your trusted advisor, your agronomist, your precision ag expert building a recommendation, and you see that they're putting phosphorus on a 50 part per million, but it's not very much, you got to start asking those questions. Okay, why are we putting phosphorus on there? They give you that exact answer. You know, we're putting on a quarter of crop removal out there just so when we come back this next time that 52 didn't slide to a 47 or a 40 or whatever and we want to you know eventually the goal is is that We want to start getting this field as level as we can, but we all know that uniformity isn't going to happen in real world soils.
1: Right. You've got the double whammy of you've got the variation in the fertility as you go across that field, the different P levels as you look at a field that's been grid sampled or zone sampled, but you've also got the variation in yield. So you almost need to bring a little bit of each of those in place or you know, put some floors and ceilings in place so you don't... uh, Don't over apply in areas that are a little short or under apply in areas that are a little high because we use this soil test a lot of times for somewhere between two and five years of applications. And when we're doing that, if we don't apply anything, we can get some crazy swings. Or if we continue to apply that build amount before we check it again, you can get some swings. And what you'd hate to do is just start. Uh, Flip flop and your lows become high and your highs become low, which you're like you said, Keith, you're trying to kind of just get it in a nice range. I don't ever say we're ever going to even it out because we're not perfect at this, but y- you try to get it in a nice range where it's not going to be a limiting factor.
0: Yeah. I, I, years ago, when I was in school, we went to Alaska with my parents and we went up the inland passage there and we got on some seas out there that were like 12 foot swales, right? You compare that to being out on Holmes Lake or something like that, where the waves get to maybe two feet, and that's more what we're aiming for. We, we want to get rid of the 12-foot swales and get to the one and two-foot waves out there. So, Keith, this
1: would be a pretty good time to do a little break in our segment and talk about our funny farm story.
0: Well, thanks for the smooth transition into that, Tim. So, One of my favorite farm stories that I have is when I was a senior in high school I was working full-time in the summers for a farm family a few miles up the road, and we had just over 10 miles of irrigated pipe, and we had to switch gates twice a day on it. So, you know, start early in the morning, switch gates for four hours, haul corn or whatever the rest of the day, and then back to switching gates. Well, we had a bin full of corn, and the um, the flighting on the auger had broken, and we were working on that one day in the heat. And... It's probably at this point in time, I should point out that the family had a couple of wiener dogs and w- Bitsy was the wiener dog that was most obese out of the two wiener dogs. And Bitsy, I would never seen this dog leave the house or the patio, the porch on the house. So we've got the 4020 hooked up to the the loader on the 4020 hooked up to this auger flighting. And he's pulling while I'm standing there with a pipe wrench, turning the flighting to back it out of the out of the tubing there. And about uh, about halfway through, I give this thing a turn and out comes a rat across my hand. And this rat is darting across the yard and all of a sudden out of nowhere, Bitsy the wiener dog comes flying off the porch on a dead run and nails this rat halfway across the yard. <laughs> and it's just a flurry of barking and howling and screeching and everything. Yep. Five seconds later, out of this commotion comes the wiener dog carrying the rat. So, and that's where I learned that that is what the purpose of a wiener dog on the farm is, is to take care of the grain bitten rats. The highlight of Bitsy's year, right there. All right, ready to keep going on phosphorus? <laughs> I don't know how you uh, transition <laughs> back into phosphorus after Bitsy the wiener dog, but let's go for it. So, you know, one of the things that that we talk about when we get into this phosphorus conversation is availability because not all phosphorus is created equal when we talked about nitrogen we had this conversation about how much nitrogen's actually out there in the soil that's totally unavailable well when it comes to phosphorus there's a bank of phosphorus out there as well that's unavailable right there's i i joke that there is p1 which is what i tell my wife is in the bank account and there's p2 which is what's in the bank account that i have hidden so she doesn't spend it when she goes shopping not like, that she would ever do it she's totally cool not like that shopping but it's still a great visual. The
1: good news here is is like my wife your wife will never listen to these podcasts of
0: us. <laughs> but she might be told that we were talking about them. There you go. Yes. So please don't tell on Keith on Keith's wife. So we've got this P2 value out there that talks about the the secondary the bank of phosphorus that's out there. How do we or can we make those P2 tests of phosphorus, make the values that we have there in the bench star players ready to go out into the farm?
1: Yeah, and that's pretty tough. I always tell people, I, I try to work mainly with my applied phosphorus and not try to go after you know, the unavailable phosphorus that's out there. So I like to think of phosphorus in kind of multiple segments. You've got what's truly plant available, which is a very small amount with some soil solution. You've got what's extractable by the laboratory test. And of course, the P1 test is a fairly light acid, um, but it's not plant available. It's still got to be extracted by an acid that's much more acidic than what your plant root can uh, exudate, can get at. You've got the P2, which is a lot more acid than the P1 extraction, kind of gives you an indication of that reserve. And then you've got stuff that's out there that's really tied up in the soil. A lot of times might be tied up with, say, calcium or iron, and is not going to come plant available really in your lifetime. But all of those pools kind of interact a little bit. So a little bit of that really unavailable phosphorus will actually come available during the crop season to kind of replace the stuff that's loosely available, that replaces the stuff that's in soil solution. You've kind of got a cycle, much like our nitrogen cycle, but, but different. What I tell people to do is as you're applying nitrogen, think about the likelihood of it tying up. And that big spread between the P1 and P2 kind of gives you some indication of that likelihood of, of it tying up. And if if you've got you know, a spread that's like a 1 to 9 or 1 to 10 of the P1 to the P2, that's telling you phosphorus wants to tie up in that soil. So you might think of things you can do to keep it from tying up, like banding it like adding nitrogen fertilizer in that area or some other acidifying fertilizer in that area to add a little acid right where you're applying that phosphorus to try to keep it available longer, make that high phosphorus zone that's contacting less soil with those bands so that the the plant
0: has access to it available longer, deeper into the growing season. So when I look at those tests, I don't necessarily think about how about what the values are or, or how that's going to affect my available phosphorus in a year or two down the road. I'm looking at those really thinking about the, the maybe the soil health might not be the right way of saying it, but looking at the sustainability of what my phosphorus program looks like. If I'm seeing those, those unavailable forms of phosphorus be several times, I mean like eight, ten times what my available phosphorus is... Something's out of whack. Something's tying up phosphorus out there and it, it's probably pH, but it doesn't necessarily have to be pH out there that that's doing that. And it's probably telling me that the way that I'm applying phosphorus and the timing that I'm putting on that phosphorus and the maybe even the form of that phosphorus isn't jiving with with getting it into the crops and, and turning it into yield. So need to do something different there. I need to look at my pH and and do things different. It tells me again the 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 sustainability of what I'm doing there with those applications.
1: I think sustainability is a good term. It really gives you an indication of how easy phosphorus is going to be to manage and how much additional thought you might need to put into it. So, you know, when we talked about nitrogen, we talked a little bit about split application and timing and all of that. Do you make a lot of adjustments to timing of
0: phosphorus, Keith, or is it pretty much just get it out there um, sometime? It's pretty much just get it out there sometime. I mean, to me, the earlier in the season that it's out there, the more likely that we're going to get it into the crop that we're growing in this season is. So to put phosphorus out at V6 and think that that's going to go into the 2019 corn crop right now is probably a little bit idealistic. It's not a reality. But if I put some phosphorus out there in December or March, I probably got a better likelihood of getting some of that product into the to that crop. And, you know, we talked about soil type
1: when we were talking about nitrogen. How about soil type and phosphorus? You know, just sandy versus more clay in it. You know, the heavy soil versus the light soil. Do you put much thought into that?
0: You know, you're going to see some of those different parent materials giving you more available phosphorus or less available phosphorus, but really the soil type itself probably doesn't necessarily indicate to me a whole lot of what I'm going to see on those test values. I'm just as likely to see soils that have been mined and are deficient in a 5 CEC soil out in the sand hills, as I am in a 35 CEC soil out in the Takama River bottom. But the reason why those levels are are single digits or, or seemingly mined down, as we like to use for a term in this industry, is two completely different reasons why. And it goes back to that availability side of things.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that too. If you've got a really low phosphorus level in a sand, it probably just means it hasn't been fertilized very well. And when you have low phosphorus availability in a clay, a lot of times it can be that it's tying up in the soil. You may have fertilized quite a bit, but it just ties up a lot. I'm with you on the timing. I don't care. Get it out. Preferably, I, I like it before the growing season. So it's there for the crop the whole season. I don't see a lot of reason to do any side dress or top dress. I just adds. hassle and trying to get through a standing crop without running it all over but i do like guys to apply fertilizer every year i don't like the two-year applications i know you save a little bit money on application costs but i i like guys to fertilize both their corn
0: and their soybeans and obviously if you're corn on corn corn every year so can banding phosphorus make the plant use less phosphorus
1: Yeah, no. I mean, I I go back to, you know, you you take off so much per bushel and generally for corn that's somewhere around, you know, 0.33 pounds of P2O5 per bushel to 0.40. For soybeans, it's between 0.8 and 0.85. So, for every bushel of yield they take off, they're going to take off roughly the same amount of phosphorus. The stover will stay there. It'll break down and release the phosphorus that's there. Banding doesn't have much to do with the plant taking up a different amount, no.
0: It's concentration, right? Yeah. It's because the concentration is higher, the tie-up is less. Yeah,
1: but the removal is going to be the same, and that's, that's another thing. As Guys will say, well, I get an efficiency factor because I'm banding it, and I'll give you that, that. It's not going to tie up as much, but you're still removing the same amount. And if your number's below that 25 part per million-ish I want you to be at, and you say, well, I'm only going to apply half the amount of phosphorus you told me because I'm more efficient with a band. No, you're still going to remove the same amount of phosphorus. And if you don't get above your removal levels, you're going to continue to mine. And that's a problem.
0: If I split my application of nitrogen and I do everything right throughout the growing season, I might be able to get my nitrogen efficiency, what I applied to end the plant into the 80 or 90 percentile range. Maybe, yep. you know, there's going to be organic forms and and all sorts of different things happening. But I can do a pretty good job of getting that into this year's crop. If I do everything right on phosphorus, I might get 50 or 60 percent of what I applied into the crop. Maybe. Right. Soil wants to tie it up. No doubt about it. But but. Some of those uh,
1: not quite plant available, but nearly plant available forms are out there in the soil. Those will release and supplement what you apply. So that makes up the difference. And what you apply becomes some of those you know, slightly unavailable forms that in future years will come available. So it's a cycle you've got to work in, but I kind of just orient orient
0: everything around crop removal and work off of that. So as we get towards the end of this conversation about phosphorus, I think the last piece of that puzzle is the starter fertilizer. And to me, if you place a liquid fertilizer product at planting time on the surface of the soil, dribbling it on, it's a fertilizer. If you band that product down to where the young plant is going to get to it, that is a starter. If I if I get that fertilizer to the plant early on, it's got a completely different purpose than to meet my phosphorus removal needs for the growing season.
1: Yeah, for the most part, I agree with that. Those those banded on the tops, I I would say where you get some benefit from that is really the nitrogen more than anything. The phosphorus becomes part of the pool. You'll get some benefit of that down the road. But you're right. The phosphorus, or say zinc, that are in those uh, dribble on the tops, going to be tough to get that into that small plant. You really need to place what you want for that small plant down with the seed.
0: But then you got to be careful. You don't want to damage right. germination. There, there's no doubt that that product is is out there, and it's placed in such a manner that when that plant grows and gets a more developed root system, it's going to find it. But the idea of getting that plant out of the ground fast, increasing plant health and establishing a young, healthy plant with that application versus somewhere else. And I know we're getting off in the weeds here a little bit on Starter, but Starter's main component is this phosphorus. That's why we ever started putting it out there. So I think you have to have a serious understanding of of what your program is designed to do before you judge its success or failure by phosphorus. Yeah, that's a good
1: point is when you think about phosphorus, you got to think about which piece you're trying to affect. Is it that overall soil fertility or is it something specific for that plant at a specific growth stage? For the most part, mainly starter and, and germination. As we move planting dates up with colder and colder soils and higher yield expectations and higher populations with smaller root systems,
0: that placement becomes more and more important. That placement is a huge factor, even though placement doesn't substitute for rate. Absolutely. So with that, I think we'll wrap up our conversation today about phosphorus and set the the stage for moving on to our next nutrient in the coming weeks, and that is potassium.
1: Yeah, we should be able to argue more about potassium, Keith, with you being from the sands and me being from the clays. We can get some good knockdown dragouts going out on potassium. You've never said anything about a potassium. I agree with. There we go. So <laughs> look forward to that for next time. We'll be back, uh, Keith Byerly and Tim Mundorf with Soil Talk. Thank you for joining us today on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com, and you can see our Precision Focus blog videos every Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Tim Mundorf and Keith Byerly.